Well, Dexter, for the third album, you kind of went back to that space theme with Voyager. And um, All Night Long was a real nice funky R&B track. Uh, Time is My Teacher was a real nice jazz instrumental. Uh, title track was sort of a jazz fusion uh, approach. Yeah. What do you recall about Voyager? Well, you know, I, I wanted to do funky fusion, you know, and um, that's what Voyager was really about, you know, to me, you know. It was um, a time in my life when um, I was going through a lot of alterations. <laughs> and uh, so that album reflects, you know, uh, what I was feeling at the time. And plus, I wanted, you know, for people to hear these great musicians I was working with, you know. I mean, um, Time is the Teacher, that was the first thing George Howard ever played in the studio as a sax player, you know. He was in my band at the time. And that actually got him his his deal with um I don't remember who who he signed with then um but anyway you know it, it I, I wanted to, for them to be able to show their skills too you know and so, uh, instead of it just being another song or something like that let's do some stuff that's really going to um show instrumental capability and 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 your gifts you know how were you feeling about how the uh, reception was to those records? Did you feel satisfied or did you hope they hit, would do better? I, I, experimental stuff uh, I, I, from Jump Street, I always realized that, you know, by me experimenting was not going to create great record sales because that's not what radio was doing, you know. And I certainly wasn't going to try to compete with uh, the great fusion acts that were out there. You know, they had that locked in. So I was kind of doing my own thing, blending different things, you know, together. So, Dexter, during that time, I mean, were you, of course, Stanley Clark was off totally doing the fusion thing. Were you keeping an eye on what he was up to? Were you guys still friends? And Oh, of course, we were always, always friends. Yeah. Um, yeah, he, he he was doing a lot, doing a lot with that, you know, with his own albums, and of course with um, uh, I keep forgetting the name, um, Return to Forever, and yeah. um, uh, as well as many other recordings he was doing, you know, he was playing on a lot of stuff, you know, he did. Um, uh, he told me a story about him and Ron Carter being on that uh, 2001: A Space Odyssey by Ymir Diodato. And that Ron Carter didn't like electric bass players. <laughs> so I said, are you serious? He was saying, yeah, man, he didn't like me at all, man. He didn't want to stand next to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, yeah, the fusion thing is, um, it's another world, you know, and, but I, yeah, I would give it a shot every now and then, you know, um, um, well, right around that era, uh, he had school days out, and I mean, yeah, yeah, stuff, yeah, yeah. I was surprised, you know, knowing that you guys were in a band so young and everything that you guys never collaborated, though. Later on, did you? We never did because what happened, like I said, was I wound up in the eleventh grade, not finishing the eleventh grade, and wound up going into the army. And by the time I got back, his career had started. He had already worked with Horace Silver in Philly, doing some shows and 
uh, asked me to take him to New York for his audition with Joe Henderson. He had already, you know, uh, moved on, basically. We you, never you never talked about, hey, you know, play on this one cut on my record or something like that? No. I was working with wonderful, wonderful musicians, you know, and I and they we were we were working well together, and I enjoyed that, you know. Um, um, uh, no, we never did anything after that, after our high school days, after our little group, the speakers days. Hmm. Well, Dexter, you did one more um, solo album in the seventies which was Time is Slipping Away. Um, funk Attack, really cool jamming uh, funk tune that was uh, obviously influenced by how popular... I'm, I met George Clinton, and that was... I'm going to do a song just like you, George. <laughs> and the Funkadelics, yeah, I met them. Um, and, I, and I said, I want to do a song just like you. He said, well, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually saw him last year down in Tallahassee, Florida, where, where he lives. I went to his house in his studio and um, hung out with them for a while. Did some keyboard overdubs for him, you know. So, yeah, I, I was a big fan of, of his. I mean, he really he really had a lock. And his keyboard player at the time, Bernie Worrell, was a hero of mine. I think that Bernie is probably one of the most underrated keyboard players ever because, it be, but he was one of the most creative, you know, he created lines and bass figures and chords and synth melodies that are replicated to this day. Absolutely. Um, well, so that, that explains Funk Attack. That's uh, some serious influence and it comes out in that track. Um, also one more for the road is one of my favorite funk instrumentals of yours. Um, and Sweetest Pain is a really pretty uh, track with a nice female vocal. It's been cool. It's a real cool, cool, funky track. It felt like that record in general was probably maybe, is it fair to say, your most commercial out of those four albums? Well, yeah, because the Sweetest Pain is my one and only hit. That was a hit record. It charted very well, and to this day, it is a mainstay in the quiet storm and the retro radio stations, you know. Um, and Terry Wells was the lead vocalist on that. And the Jones girls did the background. And um, they were all there and we, we, we were all working together at the same time. That song got Terry her uh, label deal at, um, at um, WMOT Records. Yeah, that's how she got those two albums that she did with um, WMOT. So yeah, it was um, it was it was a good good album. I actually did one more album at Philly International. It, it, it was a Dexter Wansell album, but then when it came out, Kenny had changed it to Universe. He called it Universe featuring Dexter Wansell. So I did do one more record for them. What year did that one come out? Um, um, 80, 88, 89. Okay. Some years, some years later though. Yeah. Yeah. Many years later, actually. <laughs> you know, when I look at your, um, 
your albums from that period, I think of somebody like maybe like George Duke, who was, you know, a keyboard player who was doing a fusion on his albums of some jazz and some funk and some R&B. George was a, a monster keyboard player. I, I couldn't compete with George and, um, as far as his ability to put chords and, and melodic structures together was just amazing, you know. And plus, you know, he had all those early years uh, with um, Frank Zappa and, and being a, a member of Mothers of Invention. That kind of gave him a source, a foundation that was just incomparable, really. George Duke was a, was a wonderful one. He and Stanley did a lot of stuff together. They actually did an album together. Sweet yeah, baby, I remember that. Yeah. yeah, George was amazing, and I really miss him. I met him and, and hung out with him a few times in in California, and uh, he was fun to be with. Yeah, he's gone far too soon. Yes, far too soon. Um, so why did you stop doing Dexter Wanzell albums? You just wanted to focus more on other acts at that point? Well, what happened was, yeah, basically because I was trying to survive. I, I left, left Philly International for all intents and purposes, even though they kept bringing me back for this project and that project. And um, I think they kept bringing me back because they were under the gun to get certain things distributed over the decades, you know, and everybody had moved on or was gone, you know, but I was still around in Philadelphia. So they would reach out to me to do things. Um, and I was working with other labels. I actually did an album at a very, very um, mind-boggling time of my life, and I wasn't really focused on it. I did, Virgin 10 asked me to do an album, and I did it, but to this day, I don't remember the process because of all that I was going through. I think there's a couple of good things on there, but, you know, it, it, it wasn't, and I didn't have a budget per se, you know. Um, and that started taking its toll on me wanting to be in the studio. And actually, I kind of like just, I wouldn't say that I walked away from the studio, but I, I, I actually stopped responding to production deals because there was no money there. And, you know, I, I struggled at it as it was at Philly International, you know, because um, of all the low budgets I had for my stuff and, and what I was earning there. You know, I had to do a lot of different things. I had to wear many hats uh, in order to make a good living. You know, uh, there, there was a time I was uh, the A&R director for Philly International, you know, and that helped out a lot financially. But at the end of the day, you know, um, it was a fight, you know, to, uh, to get, uh, to get uh, what was due, per se. And I think that, you know, when you're dealing with companies that are also dealing with other big companies, it gets like that. You know what I'm saying? Because the, 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 the bottom line becomes what's most important. Unfortunately, creativity has to take a backseat. And that's what I was going to say, Dexter, is that that period going into the early 80s, I mean, that sort of just became, you know, the MO for the record industry. And I think um, a lot of acts from the 70s that were so good suffered in that transition. Yeah, it's, it, it, it was an unfortunate time. And, and I think all of our music reflected that too, you know. But fortunately, a lot of that music 
um, that all of us did in the rhythm and blues and soul um, platforms from the 70s and the early 80s is found a new home to this day, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you uh, touched on a lot of them, Dexter, but I want to mention some of the other uh, acts that, according to my list here, you were involved with, and maybe we can talk about a couple of them. But some of the ones that you did not mention, uh, Blue Magic, Archie Bell, The Jacksons, uh, Gene Carn, um, Evelyn King, People's Choice, uh, Stylistics came up, but I don't think you talked about working with them directly. Uh, Regina Bell, Loose Ends, Grover Washington, Pieces of a Dream. Wow, very, very impressive. The only act you mentioned that I didn't have anything to do with, well, two, was Regina Bell and Blue Magic. Um, Regina Bell covered uh, one of my songs, uh, but I didn't do it. Um, and uh, Blue Magic, I, I didn't do. I knew them quite well, but I, I did not work directly with them as far as I can remember. I may, maybe I did. Maybe I wrote an arrangement or something for them, but I'm not sure. Um, well, that's... According to this, in 75, it was keyboards on 13 Blue Magic Lane. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Got me. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah, you're right about that. You're right. Um, Pieces of a Dream, yeah, I did their first couple of records, uh, Faux Five Faux and Warm Weather, me and Grover, and Cynthia Biggs uh, wrote it, and I helped Grover produce it, and uh, Grover Washington, yeah, I did the, uh, with him and Patty, I did that Best Is Yet to Come, uh, helped help produce and arrange it, uh, and wrote it. Um, name some of them other ones. Oh, uh, the Stylistics. Yeah, I did three albums with the Stylistics as a writer, producer, arranger. Uh, I had a hit record with the Stylistics, um, uh, Hurry Up This Way Again. Mm. Yeah, that I produced and arranged and charted. And you hear all my simps on that one. <laughs> well, what was, it, what was it like for you when um, the first record you were involved with got extensive radio play? What was that like for you personally? That was like, I couldn't believe it. I was in shock. Um, and it really was... Um, the one that I kept hearing over and over on the radio, even though I had done that early stuff with Bunny Sigler, it really was that um, yellow sunshine um, happiness that I was hearing on the record uh, uh, stations back in 73. And I was like, oh my goodness, you know, <laughs> this is something else. I want, I want to hear more stuff, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Name some of the other acts you mentioned. Well, um, for, well, I want to ask you about Grover Washington. He's one of my very favorite saxophone players. What, what was he like uh, when you spent time with him? Oh, wonderful. You know, I actually uh, was helping his, he had um, Grover Washington Jr. Productions. He had, had a production company that I helped him with. And Pieces of a Dream was signed to that company, you know, and I was trying to get him to sign the female vocalist, uh, Barbara Walker, and I used her on Warm Weather, which is was a, a good record for Pieces of a Dream, but he didn't sign her. 
Um, and plus, I was on the road with him while I was working for uh, on his acts. I actually played keyboards live with him for over a year. We toured the world together. You know, I wasn't his opening act. I was one of his keyboard players while I was producing his artists. <laughs> so he was a nice guy. He was a nice guy. And uh, we did wonderful things together. Unfortunately, uh, on that Best Is Yet To Come album, I was supposed to do more productions, but his wife, Christine, who was his manager at the time, had a difference of opinion. And because of that, we, we, we split our ways. But one thing did happen after that, and that was that he showed up at my house late one night and said, Dexter, I need your help. Uh, me and Bob James are doing a piece of music called uh, a Sweet in Three Colors, and we're doing it with the American Symphony. And Bob is too busy to write the orchestration for uh, 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 an 80-piece symphony, and I need you to do it. And I did it. And that was the last thing we did together. Hmm. Another one gone far too soon. Yeah, far too soon, really. Um well, also, I had the Jacksons on here. You did some stuff with... Uh... Uh, yeah, yeah, I did um, all their arrangements. Like, when they got to PIR, you know, the first thing I said to Kenny was, look, let them write some songs. Let them try producing, you know. And uh, they asked me to write all of their arrangements of the stuff they did, which I did. You know, Blues Away and um, a Different Kind of Lady and other things that they did. I, I, I wrote their arrangements. For. Plus, I did a couple of songs on them, uh, Keep On Dancing. And uh, the first song I did with them was like a Philly sound song. And they wanted me, Gamble and Huff wanted me to do a Philly sound song, and um, which I did. Um, I can't remember the name of it though. Um, Living Together, Living Together, which I did. You know, if you listen to it, you'll hear the Philly sound per se. Did that uh, lead in any way to your later work with uh, Jermaine? Yeah, I did. It did because they heard what I did there, and and Stevie asked me to come to LA and meet up with him, which I did. And um, so um, they asked me to write arrangements, which I did. I did the, most of the horns for "Let's Get Serious" and uh, and all of the orchestra uh, arrangement for uh, "Where Are You Now." But then what happened was Philly International sent them a letter that. Motown had to say that I appeared courtesy of Philadelphia International Records and Motown refused to do that. And I'll never understand that to this day, you know? So it's, it's like not, a customary thing. But yeah, but I'm uncredited, you know what I'm saying? And to this day, uh, uh, the last time I saw Steve, the first thing he said to me was, Dex, I need, I need some string arrangements. I said, Steve, am I gonna get credit? You know, and he just kind of st stood there and said, well, you know, that was a mistake. And we we were going to um, readdress that. But they never did, you know. So they asked, Motown asked me to do a couple of things after that. And I wouldn't do it. Hmm. Yeah, I'll never, I will never understand that aspect of things. Um, Lou Rawls, did you work with him on You'll Never Find? Uh, I did one song on that album with with Lou, um, and that was I produced and arranged a cover of a song from the movie the, uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, mm -hmm. and that was um, 
pure imagination. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did that. And we became great friends after that. I've done maybe 20 or more production arrangements and songs with Lou um, before he passed away. And that, that wasn't just at PIR. That was at CBS and other places, you know? Yeah, yeah. Lou was, became one of my best friends. You know, uh, if, if he was in Philly, he would, uh, we, me and my wife would go and be with, me and my wife Judy would go and be with him. If we were in L.A., um, we'd go and be with him. You know? <laughs> yeah, Lou, Lou was a, a, an amazing brother, you know. He seemed very gentlemanly. Oh, he was wonderful. He was wonderful and kept the spirits up no matter what he was doing, you know. Yeah, and I did a song for him that he absolutely loved so much, and he wanted uh, CBS to put it out as a single, but they wouldn't do it, and um, it's called The Wedding Song. And so he started doing it in his show, and the people from Wedding Magazine loved it and, and had them, you know, <laughs> uh, he, he would do it for shows for them and they, he would go to weddings and perform it. They would pay him like $25,000 to show up to this wedding or that wedding and perform that song. You know? <laughs> also with Lou. Um, um, so when I was the A&R director um, of the United Negro college fund reached out to me about one of our artists uh, working with them or doing, you know, maybe uh, doing a voiceover or something for them. And I recommended Lou and they loved the idea. And um, they had a slogan called a mine is a terrible thing to waste. And Lou asked me to write a song and a production and arrangement for, for him, which I did. And the first few years of that, uh, he started doing a, uh, a fundraiser show called the Cavalcade of Stars for the United Negro College Fund. The first few years, that was their theme song. A mine is a terrible thing to waste. <laughs> oh. Well, yeah. there were some interesting sort of niches that you got into and he yeah, got into. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Um, so you also worked with uh, Evelyn King? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, her first album, me and a guy named T. Life, Theodore Life Jr., had a little company. This was before I signed that contract with Philly International. We had our office together and we had a little company called Mills and Mills. And the King family used to come through there at Philly International to clean the rooms. And, and, and Evelyn was in our room one day wiping down the desk and the piano and everything. And she started, she was humming. And T said, let me hear you sing. And she started singing. And he said, Dex, we got to sign her. <laughs> and I said, okay, but Months later, I decided to go ahead and sign off that contract with Philly International, and and she signed with T. And um, I went to the studio and, and tracked and wrote the chart for both the song I wrote with him for her called um, um, uh, called "The Show Is Over" and for "Shame," and we we cut them uh, we cut them at the same time. Wow, shame! That must that had to be one of the biggest records of that year. Yeah, pretty much. I think that was like 75 or was it 74? It was later, later. You sure? Yeah, it was during the disco era. Oh. This here shows... Um, oh, it's got to be 75 because that's when I signed my contract. In the same year, the, um, um, I signed, uh, uh, I, I did I did that, that for T. It's got to be 75. 
Well, for smooth talk on here, it has for 77. Really? Yeah. But was it smooth? Smooth talk was later. Evelyn Champagne King was first. Yeah. So maybe, yeah. I don't know, mid 70s. We'll call it that. <laughs> I'm with you, Scott. I'm with you. <laughs> so, out of all these people that you worked with, is there anybody, maybe one or two, that you can point to and say, wow, when I got into the studio and worked with that person, I had to pinch myself? Probably Lou Rawls. Probably Lou, because he had such an incredible history, you know, singing with Sam Cooke. And my, one of my favorite songs is um, uh, uh, that duet he did with Sam Cooke, you know. Bring it on home to me. Most people don't know that that's a duet. And it was supposed to be Sam Cooke and Lou Rawls, but the record company kind of lowered Lou's voice. So it was, Sam's voice was a little louder than Lou's, but it's a total duet. They're singing each note together instead of the yes. They're singing each note together, each word together on that song. And the fact that he was um, such a great artist coming in off of, um, off of a natural man and love is a hurting thing. You know, I was like, oh my goodness, Lou Rawls. <laughs> and then you became friends too. Uh, yeah, and became extremely good friends. Extremely mm -hmm. good friends. What about, um, what are one or two of the top memories you have, whether uh, good, funny, thrilling, whatever, from being out on the road? Being out on the road? Oh my goodness. So we were out on the road and we were opening uh, for Patti LaBelle and Richard Pryor. So they had us in this hotel, this motel that was really rude to some of the players, you know, telling um, we couldn't walk around at night and all this kind of stuff. And they kept checking on us and everything. So one night after the show, you know, uh, on, on, show, on stage shows, you know, you see the smoke and that's hot ice. You know, they put hot ice in water to create and then blow it to create smoke on the, on the stage. So we had like a couple of barrels of hot ice that we weren't going to use because it was like the last show and I had to go back and, and do some production work. And I, we were in Virginia. So I, I and I'm going to admit to this, I told the uh, the crew, the sound crew, to take the hot ice and dump it in the pool at the motel. They dumped, <laughs> they dumped the hot ice in the pool, and 10 minutes later, all of these sirens and, <laughs> and, and, and fire trucks from all over, like, like 15 of them, because the smoke was so much. <laughs> and it was covered such a vast area that we all just stayed hidden in our rooms, you know. And we, uh, after everybody left, I said, we got to get out of here now because they're going to figure this out by the morning. <laughs> so we left. <laughs> so we left late that night. And I, to this day, I apologize because I'm sure that if, had, if there had been some real fire somewhere, that those trucks were being used for stupidity, you know, 
And to this day, I, I'm not saying I regret it because those people was mean, you know, <laughs> but <laughs> but you could see the smoke for miles. <laughs> Let me put it to you that way. <laughs> but what, what year would you say that was? I would say that was uh, 78. 78. Yeah. Yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah. And then then after that, I said, I'm not going on the road anymore. <laughs> That's when I took on the A&R job, you know, and uh, became the A&R director. Can you hold on a second? Sure. Hey. Y'all can come in, you know. Why, why are you outside? No, you can be upstairs or downstairs. Oh, all right. Can they bring the um, do whatever? Do whatever. Sorry, my my grandkids, my daughter's here, and they're all sitting outside, and I'm telling them to come on in. What are you doing? All right, I think uh, maybe 15 more minutes, and we'll wrap this up. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm gonna ask. Oh. So, you know, you're really known uh, for your amazing work in the studio and on, on recordings. Uh, how comfortable did you feel on stage as a performer? Not comfortable at all. I never was. Never will be. My hands start going like this when I got to walk out. And earlier on, I used to throw up before I went out on the stage. I, I'm not a performer in, in that sense. I'm an admirer and a fan in that sense. I'd rather be in the wings watching you perform than to be out there performing, but I had to do it to promote the records. You know what I'm saying? And to work with Grover, he wanted me to be in the band and travel with him so we could go over stuff while he was on the road. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And a lot of stuff we didn't do because uh, it wound up that I didn't work with um, uh, his production company uh, as far as being, the, I really wanted to, help him run that production company, but it, it, it didn't work out. I also did that with Teddy. Um, he had a production company uh, called Teddy Bear Productions. After he got hurt, he wanted me to help him run it. and I did the Miles J single for him. Um, um, I've Been a Fool for You, and I did Tanita Jordan stuff for him, all, all, all six of her tracks for him. Uh, for that um, EP he put out on her. Um, but his manager and uh, assistant at the time, me and her, did not agree either on how the company should go. And so that didn't work out either. And I had done a lot of positive things with Teddy. You know, I I did, um, and I've been posting them on my, um, on my Facebook site because I'm kind of letting the cat out the bag. I, I did the arrangements and productions for him and Stephanie Mills on Feel the Fire and uh, Take Me in Your Arms Tonight. I did the production, mainly me, producing. I wrote the arrangement for um, Cecil Walmack and Gibbs Noble's song that I produced on Teddy called Love TKO and so on and so forth, you know. And I really wanted to work with him after he got hurt, but it's the person he was working with, she kind of didn't want me around for whatever reason, you know, and, and it was sad because after he got out the hospital, I actually went to his house and helped him 
learn how to breathe again and voice, you know, make vocal sounds again because he couldn't talk. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had committed to doing a, 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 a song for a movie called Daryl, which was about a little boy who was a robot. Remember that? Somewhere I Belong. And he had to do that because he had been paid for it and he needed that money, you know. So I um, I helped him through that process. And But then when I couldn't get along with um, that person, um, we kind of parted ways. And that was sad because Teddy and I were very close also, you know. Um, and I was very proud of that TP album because, you know, Gamble and Huff were so busy doing other things. They didn't do one song production on that album. I had to really pull it together as the NR director, you know, so. But having said that, um, you know, um, being on the road was, I, I did it. You know, I still do it to this day you know, to earn a living. I, I'll go out and perform, but, but am I comfortable out there? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, your music under your name has been sampled so much through hip hop and all that. Um, how do you feel about that initially? And how do you feel about that today? Initially, I didn't like it because I heard, I would hear, especially Thing from the Planets, which Sony has said has been sampled over 500 times. Then there's all the uncredited samples, you know. And um, early on in in the late 70s, I started hearing it. You know what I mean? uh, By 80, it was being used by different rappers. That drum loop that Daryl Brown, Dr. Daryl Brown, who passed away not too uh, recently, not too long ago, great drummer, played on um, a number of early things with me at, at Philly International as a drummer. Um, he uh, and he left me to go with Weather Report. Daryl Brown did, you know. Um, and then he wound up with Stanley's bands. Um, but that drum loop at the beginning of Theme from the Planets, that's a part of hip hop. And initially, I wasn't happy. But then when uh, copyright control kicked in and licensing became the law by the early 90s, um, I became happy because I can see royalties for it, even to this day, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, and so- other stuff got sampled. Like you were saying, you know, um, uh, When I'm Gone um, was sampled by... Um, no, not when I'm gone. Hurry up this way again was sampled by Jay Z for his first album, um, um, and the song was um, "Politics as Usual." So yeah, uh, I'm, now I'm happy because I do see s- some royalties based on the sampling that's been done and it's being done out there. Earlier on, they would sample stuff and you wouldn't see a dime, you know, and we had to fight. You know, it actually got taken to the Supreme Court, I think, you know. So what was your what was your reaction the very first time you heard a sampling of it? Uh, I thought it was interesting. I said, oh, well, there's there's the thing from the planets. And then it went somewhere else. <laughs> I'm listening to the radio and I hear the drum beat kicking. I say, oh, they get ready to play seat theme from the planets. But it was something else entirely different. You know, <laughs> I think it was Eric B and Rakim or. Um, uh, um, I can't forget the the two guys. The guy with the hair that went up like that. Kid and play. Kid and play. Yeah, they they used it, and 
I forget who it was. It might not have been either one of those early on, but it was someone and I heard it and I heard the drum loop and I thought the music was going to kick in and it did and it went somewhere else, you know, and I said, oh, wow. You know, so it was interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's sort of the universal uh, feeling about it. Uh, once they got it right with the copyrights and actually started, you know, compensating appropriately, then it's not so bad. Right, right, right. Um, tell me um, about this show, The Sounds of Philadelphia. Um, is that still currently going? And tell me how it came to be. Well, it came to be because uh, so many people have been reaching out to me, as in this case, you know. But imagine like 50, 60 times a year I get reached out to, especially now online, you know, by different people to do radio shows, uh, to come and play, perform at their clubs or their venues or their events, you know. So I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll put a show together. And But mainly there, there's only one, two songs I do uh, uh, th that were uh, a part of, my albums and every and, and I do all the other stuff because I want to honor those people and that music that they made and that I was so honored to be a part of, you know. Um, and so many of them are gone, you know what I'm saying? And, and so I do, um, I do stuff in my show that that I did with other artists more so than, than myself. Looking back, what would you say are you most proud of in your accomplishments musically? I'm most proud of being able to work with some of the most wonderful musicians, recording artists, and engineers anyone could imagine. That's what I'm most proud of. Is there a particular track or album that you feel like was sort of your pinnacle of musical accomplishment? Nah. Nah. <laughs> Do you have one or two uh, tracks that are just among your own favorites? Yeah. Um, well, I like this. I like the fact that um, we were able to do some cultural and historic look at things and uh, the Jones Girl song, Nights Over Egypt, I kind of like that. Um, I kind of like, um, um, I kind of like um, Mysteries of the World on MFSB and, and um, Oh, Manhattan Skyline. I like that because Manhattan Skyline on MFSB because we, I think, I think that that it, that was a different kind of funk. It was an orchestral funk, you know. <laughs> you know that, that that I would have to say Manhattan Skyline uh, speaks volumes to me. I think that's the first time that jazz and orchestral funk kind of came together in a beautiful but funky way. Beauty and funk. Imagine <laughs> that. Beauty and funk. That's Manhattan skyline. <laughs> yeah, well, to me, funk is a beautiful thing, so that works totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you get um, a chance, listen to Manhattan skyline when you get a chance. You know, I'm sure it's up on YouTube somewhere. 
I will, and the viewers too. Um, so, uh, what do you? What's next for for Dexter uh, Wenzel, and how can people sort of keep up with you? Well, I did a, an old CD about twelve years ago called Digital Groove World, and believe it or not, it's actually starting to do better now than it did. I mean, it wasn't doing nothing for years. Now, all of a sudden, it's it's like getting um, what is it? they're saying what, what what word would i use it's being rediscovered you know and i i did it long after i left pir well not long but after i left pir back in 2005 i think something like that and i'm very proud of it you know because there was no budget my friends helped me out you know i, I did most of it in my home studio so i'm very proud of it uh, and um, I'm going to be doing some shows, you know. Um, I'm going to be doing some new productions. I have a son out there who's in the music business um, who's been very successful, actually. Uh, he's uh, a member of Pop and Oak and the producers that did um, Nicki Minaj and Wiz Khalifa, Miguel and... Um, Demi Lovata and uh, did both the num number one records on Alicia Cara here and, and Scars Till You're Beautiful. Actually, uh, the biggest selling uh, in one hour, uh, Ariana Grande released Imagine and it became the number one iTunes record in less than an hour. <laughs> and my son's a part of that. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Chip off the old block. So he... Um, he's got a label and he wants me to do an album and he wants me to do like a return to Mars because so many of the people he's worked with or his friends, you know, want to rap or play or, you know, work with it. You know what I'm saying? So we'll see. We'll see. Only time will tell. Well, I'm excited about that project. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to call it if, if it gets done, if it gets done, I'm going to call it Return to Mars. Perfect. Yeah. Especially now that, you know, I mean, we've actually gotten to Mars since you first did that. So, yeah, yeah. Insight landed. You know, two years ago, uh, I, NASA had me out at their um, JPL mission control room, JPL NASA mission control room for all of the Mars rovers. And I've taken, go up on, if you go up on my website, that, uh, Facebook site, I'm sorry, not my website, that Facebook site, you'll see the picture. I'm standing there in the actual control room for the Mars rovers. And they were using Life on Mars to wake up the Mars rover Curiosity. That's why they asked me out there. <laughs> wow, that has to have been a real kick for you. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, 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 that was amazing. That was amazing. And they had me sit at Charles Bolden's when he was still the administrator there, this was a couple of years ago, and they had me sit at his um, computer. So, and I'm looking at his computer, I'm saying, wow, this is amazing. And I went to grab the uh, mouse, and security jumped over and <laughs> grabbed, grabbed my arm and everything, said, no, don't touch it, don't touch it. <laughs> and I said, oh yeah, I forgot. You guys just don't do outer space stuff. Y'all do all of that um, satellite stuff national security stuff you know <laughs> like don't touch the mouse and for yeah. god's sake stay away from the dry ice <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, but that that was an amazing moment, you know, that that they did that. Yeah. Amale Oyake, he he brought me out there and I got to meet so many wonderful people, go through security the whole bit, you know. Wow. Well, any uh, final words out to your your fans uh, before we sign off, Dexter? Well, I just want to thank everyone for all the wonderful support over the decades and uh, uh, music is a wonderful thing. It I don't think there's anything that we do in life where music can't be uh, uh, important in, you know? If you go to a mo movie, you're gonna hear music. You turn on the TV, you're gonna hear music. You know, people do commercials, they hear music. You go to church, you hear music. I, I think it's a wonderful thing. Immerse yourself in the music that you love and, 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 and live well. Thank you so much, uh, Dexter. Uh, much appreciate you spending the time and continued success in whatever you do. Thank you, Scott. Thank you so much for reaching out and, and having me a part of your show. I really appreciate it. I really do. I'll tell you what, if you knew half the artists and songs Dexter Wenzel was associated with before watching this episode of Truth and Rhythm, my hat is off to you. Because his is one of the most impressive behind the scenes careers from the 1970s golden era of soul, funk, and jazz fusion. And of course, I love his solo records, which were chock-a-block with funk, jazz, and R&B. What an amazing lifetime of marvelous music. Enormous thanks again to Mr. Dexter Wansell for sharing his terrific stories and time with Truth and Rhythm. Also, as always, a sincere thank you to you, the viewer, for your continued interest and support in Truth and Rhythm. Speaking of which, subscribe. If you're not already subscribing, what's going on? Subscribe. It doesn't cost you a dime. For the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, that's where Truth and Rhythm lives. Also, Truth and Rhythm quick takes, all kinds of great stuff. Tell a friend, tell family, support these great uh, musicians and icons and figures of the 70s, 80s, 90s, up to the current day, back to the 60s, covers the gamut of funk, R&B, soul, and jazz artists. So climb aboard the Truth and Rhythm party train and bring some friends and family along too. Speaking of which, write me, write scottg at funkinstuff.net. Let me know what you'd like to see on the show, what you enjoy about it, um, who else you'd like to see. If you're an artist that's been part of funk, R&B, soul, jazz, connect with me. Right, Scott G at FunkinStuff.net, and uh, come on on the show. Um, lots of feedback, ever-increasing uh, volume of mail in the mailbag, if you will, the uh, cyber email uh, bag, and uh, love it. So keep it coming, and it's your show, so help shape it and help support it. Until then, as always, this is Scott Dr. J. Goldfine saying, keep on vibrating to the rhythm of the one.